Welcome to the No Film School podcast for Thursday, April 6, 2023. This is Gigi Hawkins, and I'm here with my friends Yaro and Jason. And sadly, Charles is having technical issues and can't join us today. It's just proof that even the most tech-savvy people in the world sometimes run into tech issues, and we're not alone. Sometimes <laughs> I think I'm crazy. Sometimes Charles it's is- just technology. Yeah, Charles' setup is actually also very complicated and intricate. So, you know, when you have something that is 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 that massive and and complicated, it it has, you know, points of failure. Points of failure. And this week we are talking about two topics. The first is the backs the backpedaling that we've seen in Hollywood in terms of diversity and inclusion as a result of the UCLA 2022 study. So we'll dig into that and some factors that are coming into play and what we can do as independent filmmakers and creators to support diversity and diverse perspectives. And on top of that, we're going to talk about being original in your own work. How can you avoid cliches? How can you bring something fresh to the table, which is a perfect complement to our the first part of our discussion. So with that, I would love to hear from Jason sort of an overview of the UCLA study. Definitely, yeah. So when this came to us from UCLA, they do a study every year, basically looking back at the previous year since it'll be 2022 movies and saying, hey, like, this is what we saw. This is who directed what, who starred in what, and how did this relate to other years? Our own Alyssa Miller, intrepid reporter, covered it, and I'll give you some of that. Basically, what UCLA found was that after trending upward in the past three years, racial, ethnic, and gender diversity among actors, directors, writers and theat- like all for theatrical releases slid back to numbers we saw last in like 2019. Basically what they found is like movies with women or people of color as directors tend to have a more diverse cast than movies directed by white men, which I think is interesting and you know something we'll definitely unpack. And then also for the first time we saw actors with disabilities and you know saw that they were also kind of poorly represented across all platforms including theatrical and streaming. And this is obviously all kind of after the fanfare of the Oscars, right? Where you had everything everywhere all at once and the star Michelle Yeoh and, you know, had, you know, diverse directors and a diverse cast taking home the most awards. So it's pretty interesting to see, like, that's a movie that did genuinely incredibly well, not just at the box office, but with awards. But in a year where we actually saw this backslide, you know, I wouldn't go as far to say it's like, you know, diversity saved the box office, but it obviously was a incredibly huge contributing factor. You know, I feel like everyone's out there giving Top Gun Maverick its flowers, which it deserves. It's a great film. But when you look at, that's one movie that brought people back to theaters. When you look across the year, you know, movies like The Woman King, Everything Ever All at Once did have a substantial amount of power at the box office, bringing people in and getting people interested in stories being told by people with different backgrounds and about different cultures. I love that we're coming back to the data to analyze and scrutinize the numbers because it's very easy to fall into a narrative of, look at how well we've done. Look at the progress we've made. Look at this one tentpole example of everything everywhere all at once sweeping the sweeping the awards season. But in reality, when it comes to equity and even finding parity when it comes to representation i think we have it, it's embarrassing it's it's yeah. it's embarrassing and not only is it you know a backstep for women and people of color but we're also seeing just like 
atrocious numbers when it comes to specific groups. For example, uh, one of the big takeaways from the UCLA study that was highlighted by MENA Arts Advocacy, MENA standing for Middle East North Africa Representation, is that um, in, you know, it's basically mostly zeros across the board. So when it comes to top theatrical films, there were zero MENA directors in 2022. 1% of directors from the streaming films in 2022 were MENA. 1%, 1.1% of writers for top theatrical films, 1% of writers for streaming films, and zero MENA leads in top theatrical films, 1% MENA leads in streaming films. Like These are numbers that do not represent or reflect parity in this country, the United States, or this world. And, and so I think, you know, we can, we, we easily fall back on the idea of diversity. Oh, look, like this, we've seen this much progress in the Asian community, in, in the Black community, but like we need to actually just dig in further into those numbers and look at the work that needs to be done. The numbers are so bad that we're, like we're failing at a rate that would in many other industries send up alarm bells of like, this is, if we're not reaching this audience or this particular segment of the population, like we're failing as a business. And I don't think that the urgency is there when it comes to business decision makers talking about this. I think it's a lot of the stuff feels very performative in, in inclusion. And like, let's tell a story that that is you know, a biopic that is sort of portraying a narrative and then that ch- checks our box versus looking at the bigger picture. Absolutely. I mean, I think, <laughs> no, I, you made a lot of good points. You know, we'll take it back. Here's some of the numbers. Women gained ground as writers. And by gaining ground, I mean 20% of movie writing positions uh, were women, 27%. That's not great, right? Like 20, like, hooray, like in 2019, it was 17%. In 2022, we're at 27%. That's that's not that much of a change. You know, another big thing I thought, uh, just kind of a staggering number, women of color were severely underrepresented among writers. Only one woman of color penned one of the top 200 theatrical films in 2022. And that to me is like another damning number. Obviously, like there's any people that come in and say like, oh, well, they wrote this or maybe they're writing indies or whatever. It's like, fine. But if you look at generalized Hollywood releases, right, the top, let's say 500, you know, movies that are released per year, what we're expecting them to do and and where they're going. These voices are important, not just for, you know, the slaps on the back and the feel good, but because minority audiences and diverse people show up to the box office. You know, I I think the New York Times a couple years ago, maybe last year had a huge article that we covered. and, And basically the numbers were like, we're leaving billions of dollars on the table, not diversifying Hollywood because people are going to see movies where they're represented. And when you don't make those movies, there's just cash left behind. And, you know, we'll find that and link it back in this. But I'll tell you another big number that Alyssa pointed out that I thought was interesting um, was that, here, I'll find it here. It's something like minority audiences are like 50% more likely to show up when they're seeing themselves represented on screen, which is, you know, again, a crazy thing that we're just leaving money on the table for this. Like Hollywood needs to bounce back. Obviously the pandemic was horrific. One of the best ways it can bounce back is if it diversifies in front of and behind the camera, because these stories wind up mattering so much. And when you put people in front of them behind the camera, 
you wind up getting not only a in more interesting perspective or a perspective we haven't seen generally before, but also perspective that draws people into the audience and makes money. I think that winds up being a huge deal. You know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, Hollywood is both commerce, right, and art. And I think diversifying sort of satisfies the both best of both worlds. Not saying there's no jobs for, you know, straight white men. I'm I'm not worried about getting work. I I don't think I have been ever. You know, I, a lot of it is just how do we represent these things? And also like, how do we make money? And it's very clear in the numbers that the money is being left on the table there. And, you know, I think it's sad. I, I did think it would be better. I think, look, COVID's to blame for a lot of different things and the, the shutdown. But to me, like a jump between writing positions and I'll, I'll find the directing numbers too, you know, a jump of only 10% better from 2019 to 2022 just doesn't feel right. I want to add, I'm, I think I'm going to be Dr. Anecdote on this episode. Because I, I, I have these weird perceptions of diversity in Hollywood and kind of my own experiences with that growing up with movies, being an immigrant in America and having a weird time assimilating. Just because when we got here, my, my dad was very against it. He was like, no, you are, you know, you are of your own culture. You, you're an Eastern European you know, man. Like You have to embrace that. And I'm, I'm seven. Right. So like, what do I know about where I grew up? And so for me, the movies that made more sense were those that had actors who weren't American. And this is like Jackie Chan and Van Damme and, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger because they sounded foreign. And that to me made sense because I just, I, I sounded foreign at that time. And so it's, it is important for, you know, your movies to have actors that are diverse just because it it does you know like from you know my own experience it does bring a certain connection that you can't get with you know like tom cruise you know tom cruise is cool maverick was great the original top gun was great but connecting with that as as an immigrant was not easy you know because it's it was different from what i grew up on and then you know Gigi, you said something really interesting like we we can't just be like, oh, we fixed it. Now we can, you know, move on and, and just continue business as usual. And I feel like I can equate it to therapy, where if you, you know, you feel you're, you're okay, you've done the work, you feel like you're fine, it doesn't mean you have to, have to stop doing the work. Because then you just go back to your old habits. And I think that's what happened. Because another anecdote, I feel like in the 90s and 80s, there was a bigger pool of diverse actors that I saw on screen in commercials in in television and then that disappeared I mean I, I don't have stati- statistics for this this is just me kind of thinking back to growing up and 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 I feel like it that changed for the worse in 2000 you know in 2005 and now we're oh sorry, go sorry ahead. and now we're coming back to it so so you know we got to continue putting the work we can't stop being healthy <laughs> I think that you bring a very interesting perspective coming as a viewer, as a, you know, growing up as an immigrant here in the U.S. and finding and connecting with protagonists that also connect with like wide audiences. And it and it brings me back to the strategy at the small production company that I worked for last summer, Local Time, which is created by Lulu Wong and Danny Melia. Lulu and Danny came together working on the the film The Farewell, which is this beloved film about 
a very specific experience of Chinese American character, Billy, who's played by Aquafina, whose grandmother is diagnosed with cancer, but the family is keeping a secret. And it's a dark comedy about a family secret. That is a universal thing that audiences can connect with. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that that movie is also so beloved beloved here in the U.S. is that we all have an equivalent of a, of a grandma that we love and loves us unconditionally in that very special relationship. We don't all have a grandma who lives in China in a culture where it's sometimes better to preserve, you know, in, in the, the cultural perspective, which is kind of the key tension within the film is like, should we tell her or should we not hear it? And, and I think it explores a theme that is so unique and so original, but it has at its core something that we can all connect with. And I think there's something so powerful about that. And I loved watching local time develop content around something that is very specific, yet also very universal. And I think there's sometimes a fear that something that has such a specific perspective, that a story that has such a specific perspective would, won't connect with mass audiences. And from a business perspective, that that is, a I think, a false fear. It's a fear based in, as we know, the data doesn't support it. And that's why I think we need to reiterate the success stories that we've seen of creators who are telling specific yet universal stories. And and Yara, when you bring up like the fact that you connected with Jackie Chan and people who may have been different, those were also those are also case studies of how a specific experience showcased in a film can be universal and loved by many. Yeah, I think what 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 pitfalls I'm seeing, and again, anecdotal, no statistics, no statistics for this, but people in producerial roles want, you know, this giant film that hits, you know, all age groups, all four quadrants. I guess that's the same thing, isn't it? You know, and covers like this this all demographics with one blanket, and you know that becomes a very bland film, then people like, you know, show up kind of, but don't. And then like the success is very hit or miss and, or it can get exhausting because it, they feel like the same film. And, you know, then you see these other movies that are, are kind of in their own world and show different cultures and show different perspectives that are successful. And I want to see that. That's my, my hope for the, for the next couple of years is smaller films when compared to like big blockbusters like you know maverick and, and marvel films smaller movies but that are telling different stories and are fun to watch just because you know they are perspectives that we don't get yeah i'm hopeful for that one thing i'll say i finally i got the statistics i knew i would find <laughs> just going off that yarrow you know six of the top 10 movies released in the theater had audiences that were at least 50 percent minority moviegoers that was the, the number I was looking for. And then the success of the top 10 streaming films of the year were fueled by an over-representation of audiences of color. So obviously, like, again, from a business perspective, this is coming out. From an art perspective, I mean, look at the Fast and the Furious franchise. It's easily the most diverse of all these blockbuster movies, and they're making billions of dollars, I think, working in a way that some would argue it's like they're making a pretty good blockbuster product they're using diversity at the same time and they're making money because of it. That to me winds up being like the ultimate version of what Hollywood producers are striving for today, right? How do you make a blockbuster tentpole movie that also 
fulfills these categories. Obviously, I'd like to see smaller things being made. I think that's that conversation is not totally devoid of what we're talking about, but it is such a different business perspective in terms of what's going on. One thing I used to say, and just like, here's my short anecdotal POVs. When I broke into Hollywood, I was always the guy who was like, well, I think this, this should be like the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL. If you can play, if you can dunk the ball, you should be able to get to make a movie. You should be able to do whatever. And unfortunately, Hollywood just is not as simple as a professional sports league, right? The people with talent do not get to rise to the top. You know what I mean, you don't get just an automatic go ahead to try and do things. There's personalities, there's networking. And then there's also, you know, when I talk about Hollywood, we're talking about America pretty much in general at that point. There's also like grievous laws that have affected people for a very long time, you know, women, people of color, certain things. So it's like you start extrapolating that and suddenly it's like, yeah, you could say you want Hollywood to be like professional sports league. It's a what, but you'd have to live in a utopia for that to be a case. So since we don't live in a utopia and since, you know, I think the uninformed or the people that don't want to think things through want it to be a certain way. Uh, it's easy to brush these things uh, aside and say like, oh, you have the talent, cream rises to the top, blah, blah. But what I think is maybe more important is to recognize, hey, these numbers statistically don't represent cream rising to the top. Like it, it should be evident to anybody looking. It doesn't mean, you know, inher- if you're part of one of these underrepresented groups, you are inherently more talented. Of course, it doesn't mean that. But it, I think it would be foolish to think only the talented are at 27% rising, right? Like that's, a, that's a sort of an uninformed, crazy opinion. So how do we change that? A lot of it comes in hiring, right? Producers who are looking for projects, making a more diverse list, right? The way things happen in Hollywood, many people know, either you're selling your own idea, great. That's one way. Most of the way it happens is like this trickle down effect where an idea is bumped around at the top. They say they want to make it. They make a list of the people they want to work on it, star in it, write it, produce it, direct it, whatever. Those lists are genuinely skewing white and male. If you are a producer making a list, just make a better list, right? If you are someone who has an idea and you're making your own casting list, make a better list. I mean, it, it really does boil down to that. We can belabor and bad for them into hiring more. And I, I hope that works. But we just honestly need a structural change at the top. That honestly probably means hiring more diverse executives. And, you know, like again, like this is a, a problem across Hollywood. I think you'd find that if you hired more diverse executives, you'd have more diverse lists. There'd be more diverse people in jobs. We kind of go from there. Gigi, I may have something to add to that. I, I, I also want to call out creating the idea of creating pathways to, to bring diversity at higher levels, because a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts are getting people into writer's room at a lower level, helping them break into the industry. But there are also a lot of people who I, I think there should be an effort to help with lateral moves. So somebody who may have may may not have the traditional Hollywood assistant to ascent experience, the assistant ascent, which sounds like a action movie. An example of creating lateral moves to put somebody in a position of power in Hollywood is the Pixar movie Soul, which is directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers. Kemp was also a, a writer on the film, but he had this was his first du- film that he directed and he co-directed and and Pete Doctor is bringing creating a like bringing somebody up onto the level of 
his career. And that's a using your privilege to beget privilege. And I think that's a perfect example of how you can affect change. I was going to, I had a thought when you were talking about that, where another anecdote to add to this as well. Like if you are a producer, and I guess this is a note for producers, if you are a producer and you're hiring, you know, someone for their diversity, be sure to utilize them as a writer, not as a diverse writer because just because someone was born not in america immigrated here or is just you know of a different skin color doesn't mean that they don't have like broad stories to tell and and i have a friend who was on a show who was hired you know through you know because of his diversity and they and, and you know in his kind of experience on this on this project they came to him specifically for those diversity questions even though he was a very capable writer that wrote very kind of you know i don't want to say traditional stories but you know he was very capable but wasn't you know given the room to create as a writer and was only kind of put in the room to create those nuggets of diversity which i think is not a great use of a writer you know so if you hire somebody whether or not you know they're diverse or not use your people as writers not as whatever you think they are because you're also then you know putting people in a box and you're not letting them kind of grow and you're not giving them opportunities to have the necessary experience to then go on to be in positions of power so i think that's important so producers if you're listening take note please it's probably even i'll say this every week until it's resolved but Part of what the WGA is fighting for right now for writers on set, you know, in their negotiations is making sure these rooms are expanded so that people can get their foot in the door, right? You can have staff level writers. And they're also trying to make sure that people chose budget to have, give those people opportunities on set, right? To see what they've written, come to life, to be on set and get that experience because those are the showrunners, the creators, you know, of the future. And again, no matter what they're creating, no matter what they're doing, their points of view matter. And if you have the, the business side of Hollywood squeezing out those jobs, what they're doing is negatively affecting not just the amount of writers who can work and who can live in Hollywood, but also they're squeezing out diverse voices who will you know, sculpt television and film and TV for the, the landscape of the future. So you know, I, I think it's really important. It's something that I know the WGA is to the forefront of their activities and something I hope changes for the better because we will get better movies and TV shows. And that's all we've ever wanted, right? Yeah, I like I'm, that that addresses the system. It's it's looking at how we can create a system that better supports writers across the board. Yeah, I guess I guess we should also talk about like how when you are working your way up the ladder in Hollywood, which is always you know very nebulous. I, I always try to equate it to like, oh, the corporate ladder has a ladder. You you start on the bottom rung and then you climb up and you get to the top, and then you're in your treehouse and your CEO and your whatever and in Hollywood, the CEO treehouse, right? Yeah, the corporate treehouse. And in Hollywood, you don't have a ladder; it's just a tree, and you're like climb it, you know. And then the opportunities, or the the ways you can climb a tree are are so diverse. And uh, I think for a lot of people, getting noticed and getting seen is by making their own work. And I think that segues into kind of our next question. 
Yeah, I was going to say, and when you climb that tree, if you get up to a branch and you feel comfortable, uh, help some other people up, right? Yeah. Maybe we sum it up that way. Help some other people up. They don't have to look like you. They don't have to be exactly like you. But if you're on that branch and you have a free arm, help some people up. Mm-hmm. With that, I, I, that, I feel like that this tree climbing analogy could be a good way to think about how we're climbing into our stories that we're creating and writing. You know, we're three writers on a podcast. And and I think that I was struck by Jason's article this, I think this was a couple weeks ago, about cliches in, in that we see in film and TV and how to sort of uh, be aware of them and avoid them. And I find that a lot of early screenwriters use these cliche jokes or moments as a crutch because when you're first learning how to write, it feels familiar. It feels like this is a movie. Yet some of the most fantastic films I've seen are the ones that move are so far away from that that it's truly you can feel the writer or and or director chasing their bliss and having confidence in their own self. So I kind of wanted to unpack originality in the spirit of embracing different perspectives and stories given the results of 2022 and the embarrassment around that. <laughs> it's funny. So the way I came up with this article, it's on a film school, it's called Overused Jokes and film and TV. And, and really, I think it covers more than just jokes. But uh, the idea was like, look, I love I love writing cliches. I was talking to one of my friends, this guy, Evan Whitman. I already asked if I could say his name, so we're good. He runs Get Made, which is like a consulting thing. He was saying, I we call them clams, like C-L-A-M-S, clams. He was like, they're kind of like script clams. And you just like, you're digging and you dig out a bunch of them in a script. And you're like, well, why are you using it? You know, like, what are you trying to make here? Like, this is interesting. And, and it was something I never think about. A couple of years ago, there was this super cut on Vimeo and it was just characters saying, you know what the difference between me and you is? And it was like, suddenly you see that and you see 150 of those and you're like, oh my God, like I got to cut that out of a couple of scripts, you know? So I just got to thinking like, what are some of these? You know, I, I talked about the dad joke or the character that's always delivering the zingers or just the double on time drill or that awkward silent beat where everyone's just kind of looking at each other. Of course, there's also like cultural stereotypes, you know, like whatever you want to throw in there. The meta joke, you know, I think Scream did it perfectly. And ever since everyone's figuring out like, how can we be as meta as Scream? It's like, well, maybe you can't be. Maybe you need to try a different way in. Um, That pop culture reference, like I just referenced Scream right there. (laughs) You know, are you doing that too much? Or the gross out joke was another big one. I thought like sometimes when people have no idea what to do, they go gross. And I think depending on your tone and story, it works. But a lot of times it could take people out of the movie or out of the TV show. So those are like the eight I talked about. But a lot of it is, I think what Gigi said, which is like when you sit down to write, especially when you're a beginning writer, a lot of times what you're doing is mimicking your favorite thing. I'll never forget one of my favorite professors of all time, Lynn Elliott. She knows she's a, she's a, a listener, not all the time. Maybe she listens to this one. She's still a film professor and we email frequently. And I remember when I was a freshman in college, she's reading some of my scripts. She said, Jason, you do a great Kevin Smith impression, but I don't care. Like you gotta, you gotta figure out what you have to say. And I just, I'll never forget that. And I, I, to this day, I'm probably still figuring out what I have to say, but I think I'm trying to say it in a way that's not an impression of someone else. And, and because we learn mimicking, I think sometimes we get stuck in that vibe, right? You know, how do we branch out? How do we actually put to paper what we think, what we feel, what we want? And those cliche jokes can get in the way, right? Because they can feel like a crutch 
we're leaning on not to reveal too much or not because we don't have a scene figured out yet. It doesn't mean you don't use them. You know, like I, I can tell you right now, I'm writing something that has an awkward pause in it. I just wrote the scene <laughs> before I got here. But it, it does mean we should challenge ourselves to do more. I do think that when I was first starting out as a writer, it was really scary to try something, especially in comedy. Because if you're trying something, it could fail. If you're trying to make a joke land that doesn't fit within a parameter of something that I've already seen work on, like insert a million things that have worked in the past, it means that like you could be doing it wrong, quote unquote. And I actually see this a lot in the sketch comedy scene here in LA. There's a lot of comedy that is... The best way I can describe it is half-assed because the the work is not the people who are creating it aren't fully committing to the bit. They're kind of like holding themselves back and and almost winking at the camera of like I'm see I'm not even fully trying so so you can't even fully laugh at me because I'm laughing at myself and it and it it has this almost meta element that I think was funny and original maybe. 15 years ago, but now it just feels again, like repetitive and done. And it's interesting also seeing the work that stands out. I think of a couple of creators like Jens Joseph and Rick, Rick Barge, Garge, Darge, Darge. Like they, these are people who are committing to their weird and, and that is what makes it pop and, and, I love it. I'm, I feel like if you you know me in real life, you know I'm friends with a lot of comedians. One of my favorite, actually three of my favorite comedians have a, a podcast called The Local News. I'll give them a shout out because I'm going to say something they say here all the time, which is commit to the bit. You have to commit to the bit. And if you're writing a feature TV show, you are committing to your idea. And sometimes I feel like these cliche jokes pull us out of what you've committed to. If you don't commit to the bit, the audience isn't laughing, right? The audience isn't building on the world you've created, on the character you're going for. Because if you break you know, out of it, like we've all seen Jimmy Fallon do on SNL and the classic clips again from 15 years ago, maybe more at this point. If you're not committing, people aren't buying in. You know, that's one of the big things in screenwriting 101, right? It's like commit to the story. You have a world, you've built rules. Don't suddenly pull us back and make fun of them or just do whatever. You know, I think it's like if you're going to go all in, go all in. And if you commit to the bit, the audience will commit with you because if you believe in your concept and you believe in the story you're telling, then other people might believe in it. But if you hold back and don't go whole hog or what are you asking people to do then? If you're not willing to go all in, why would the audience or an exec or, or a reader passing it up ever go all in either? Yeah, I, I agree. When you... Like, even if you don't feel it in, in kind of the, the delivery, when you kind of, I don't want to say half-ass it, but don't commit, it's like there's this kind of undertone to your screenplay, to your story that feels a little lackluster. And for me, that's a big thing with me being too vague. I'll, I'll like write some stuff in and then, you know, I'll give, I'll give it to a friend to read and they're like, you know what? It just feels incomplete. You know, and not like there's isn't a specific thing that I can fix. It's just overall, there's no oomph behind it. And I feel, you know, like it's not a certain little like word or scene I can fix. It's a it's a whole thing that I have to commit to like throughout the whole screenplay. And another, I wanted to add one one joke that I have always 
or I, I, I haven't always seen it, but I, I've seen it a couple times and I've seen a super cover, super cut of it as well. It's when one character says who, and the other person says, what are you a fucking owl? And that's in so many movies. <laughs> and, and it's a good bit. It's a good joke and it's funny. But if you've seen it a couple of times, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. That one from Goodfellas or from Casino. It's like the Aaron Sorkinisms, right? <clears throat> He's mm-hmm. got stuff that he writes in every show and movie. And you're suddenly, when you see them all together, they're like, Oh, this is just what he said in this. And this is yeah. this is just a West Wing walk and talk, yeah. but in the newsroom. This is just uh-huh. a whatever. I find that to be super interesting. And as a writer, there's definitely stuff I try to sneak into everything. For a while, mm-hmm. every script I wrote had a scene where a character was looking up at glow-in-the-dark stars on a ceiling at some point, no matter what the genre was. I was like, I can I that. put this in every <laughs> single thing? You know, yeah, exactly. But I did it for a long time. It didn't make it into anything. And then I was like, you know what? Maybe I just got to stop putting these in there. But originality at, at the end of the day is focused on you having something to say. Right. And, and I think just riffing off the diversity thing, there's just other people out there with ideas and things they want to say. Those are the movies I tend to seek out. It's funny. I was talking to one of my friends yesterday about this, but it's like, I, we had both seen a movie that we were like, we didn't like, but I was like, but thank God they tried something. I mean, like, oh yeah. man, like yeah. I just care so much more when someone swings from the fences and misses than when you get this kind of schlock that comes straight down the middle and you're like, oh, like, what? who cares? You know, swing for the fences, people. It's, I will tell you, everyone appreciates it more. Every exec I ever talked to, every exec that's ever passed on a Jason script has been like, oh, thank God he swung for it, you know? But, totally. Uh, and I, I also love the idea of as you're finding your own voice, you will find what your own cliches are. For example, I always have a moment where like a woman who is put together seemingly is smiling and her smile will glitch. And it'll be like, huh, oh. What? You know, and 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 I think that is it's it's and then when you start to recognize like the sentiment behind the scenes or the moments that you're drawn to, you get closer and closer and start to hone your voice. And that bringing it back to the big picture in the business, knowing your voice and having confidence in what your voice and perspective is, is something that development people love because they need to be able to figure out how to place you in the slate and where your voice will contribute to a room or where your perspective will bring something unique yet universally accessible or accessible to a big audience. I think that if you can trust that you'll get there, even if it means taking some scary leaps because you're not falling back on something that you've necessarily seen before or gotten joy before, but like examining why you like that moment or why you like that joke and then making it your own is so important. So with that, thank you so much for listening to the No Film School podcast. Send us your questions, podcast at nofilmschool.com. Do you guys have anything you'd like to share for this coming week? You should find me on at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. We're working on a couple cool ideas. One is just, if I was running a movie studio, how would I make it successful? And then that's a big article I'm working on now that'll hopefully be out this or next week on No Film School. And you should check out that local news podcast where I get a lot of screenplay ideas. It's very fun. But yeah. I'm going to add, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal Jason's first step to having a successful movie studio. Don't make movies. <laughs>
get into business <laughs> doing anything else. We're not jaded here. Yeah, yeah that's what no. it I'm living. I'm like Willy Wonka over here. I got plenty of yeah. money. I'm Yaroslav Altoon, and you can find me on Instagram at iyaro87, like iPod. Although I should stop saying iPod because they don't make those anymore. You're dating yourself. Yeah, but man, I'm all. There I'm are all, I'm iPhones older. people use every day. Yeah. Yaro, iPhones. Yeah. Like so, iPhones. Yeah, I like like an iPhone. So iyaro87 because someone stole iyaro, and they don't use the account, which is so annoying. So every now and then I'll check in and be like, nope, still there. What? And, they're they're you don't even need them no i don't you're, no. you're 87 originally 87, originally from that year so yeah um oh and one last thing we had a listener write in asking about the specific account that you can create the account from our money episode last week the account that we suggest you open and of course we are not financial advisors no. but we are no. financially savvy filmmakers hopefully is a Roth IRA and you can also speak to a financial consultant at Vanguard Fidelity, Fidelity. Mm-hmm. Uh, insert all of these above Merrill Lynch I think and from there we you can start saving Definitely <laughs> always talk to a financial planner. Like you, we can kind of give you broad strokes or interesting ideas, but man, I mean, there needs to be a professional to to kind of guide you in the right direction. So yeah. do that. Don't listen to us. We're writers. We don't we don't know anything. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.